everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. You know, this is our 50th episode of this version of the Bloke and the Bird Show, and I know it seems a little odd what I am about to do, but I do know that we picked up some new listeners in the last two weeks, so I thought this was a really good time with the start of the season and everything that was going, even though we are at episode number 50, to have a quick introduction. Okay. Well, you know, some general things of how we function and operate and what we do and what to expect as we go through the season. More than just we fly by the seat of our pants. Well, we do that a lot. (laughs) You know, one of the things I wanted to mention, it makes us partly a little odd, partly a little... Unique. Unique Unique is the word you want. Not the best way. We admit it's not the best way, but schedule, this is what works for us. Typically what we end up doing is we end up recording on a race weekend either Saturday night or Sunday morning, which means unfortunately sometimes, not this week however, but sometimes, oftentimes, we end up recording the show before the race. Don't know what happened during the race, but when the show gets published, it's post-race. I know it's a little odd, but that's one of the reasons why our focus when we do our shows, especially around the races, isn't so much that lap-by-lap recap of these are the things that have happened and this is, or the technical analysis, it is the stuff that's caught our eye during the race or more importantly to us, the stuff that's happened off the track around the race. Well, we have talked often both on air and off, that the thing that we love most about F1 is the drama of F1. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we tend to make a priority to bring to you is our view and our opinion and, oh, everything that we see that's interesting that surrounds the drama. So we may not get rules heavy. We may get drama heavy. We may not, we may pick on a, a principal or a driver or Bernie. Um, Along the way, because they're creating the drama that attracts us so much, much more so than necessarily on-track action, as much as we enjoy the on-track action, which adds to the drama. Especially when you have some races that are not as exciting as others. It's the other other stuff that happens that, that can really suck us in. True. Now, we are mainly focused on Formula One, and odds are... The pinnacle of motor racing at least as they claim. Odds are the way things are going so far this season, we may be very much focused on Formula One. But we did want to kick off really early. You know, we've been keeping an eye on the IndyCar series, the Verizon IndyCar series in the U.S. Um, So we did want to talk a little, before we get too far, into just what happened at last week's IndyCar race that caught our eye. Are you done dancing now? Uh, you know, we needed a little IndyCar music to get into IndyCar. Okay. I'm sure Indy would object to that being their IndyCar music, but okay. It works for us. <laughs> so when we last left our IndyCar racing, um, we were anticipating a basically a Penske lockout of the first three positions, and Unfortunately, Will Power suffered a concussion. No, actually, it was not a concussion. It was a suspected concussion, but it turned out after testing at the end of the weekend, it was not a concussion, but probably an ear infection. Ah. 
And so he was not concussed. Correct. Well, any either way, the pole sitter um, did not compete. He had a replacement driver that started at the back of the grid, which opened up the front end of the grid, leading to a 1-2 pen, Team Penske for Juan Pablo Montoyo sitting at the very top end of the grid. Mm-hmm. And his um, top rival, the the professor they call him, Simon Pagano. See, I got it right. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed. I might have been practicing. <laughs> um, and shockingly, not a Penske driver, but actually an Andretti Autosport driver, Ryan Hunter Ray, sitting in P3. Yeah, now... Some some things that caught us yes, watching please. the race. Uh, besides the, the rolling start, which I got to say, I'm not a fan of rolling starts. It felt... Anticlimactic? Yeah. It, 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 I, it didn't work for me. No. Um, very tight, very twisty course in uh, St. Petersburg. This was a street race that... Kind of odd. If, if you think about it, okay, this is downtown St. Petersburg, or, or the fringes of downtown St. Petersburg, and the race ran over a combination of a runway at an airport and downtown streets. Yes. It actually got out of the airport proper to run on the city streets to get back into the road. It was kind of odd, but whatever. It was sort of half autocross, half Monaco. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> probably a decent way to look at it. Um there was a rather spectacular crash. Actually, it wasn't so much spectacular. It was, well, it was spectacular, and it involved a lot of cars that basically shut down half the, half the field. What was amazing about that crash was that, what was it, 12 cars were involved in some way, even the ones that stopped before they got hit in some manner, because it was in such a narrow part of the course, it... Um, it bottled it everything made up. a bottleneck, a giant bottleneck. And that was one thing. But in F1, what we have traditionally seen is that they would have red flagged the race and Mm -hmm. gotten everybody as far away as possible and made sure that people weren't, like, driving fast um, so they could clear up the wreck. The problem is here, the marshals ran out while people were still on hot laps running past them. Um, It wasn't just that. You know, in F1, if you stall your car, that's it. You're done. Yeah. There's no more of that. In IndyCar, they've got a truck that comes out and restarts your car for you. Yes. Pit stops are much slower. Right. Um, Even without refueling, they're much, I mean, there's fewer guys in the pits, but they push the car out of the pit box. I know. That's a little (laughs) weird. Now, we've gotten used to, in F1, a sub-three-second pit stop, and these pit stops are seven to ten seconds, depending um, and fewer people. I mean, there's not a tire guy, you know, there's not a old tire guy, new tire guy, and a gun guy. Yeah. There's one guy. And the other unique, well, the interesting site that we saw quite a bit of, at least at St. Petersburg, I don't know if we're going to see this other times, but a guy actually crawling into the side pod intakes on the cars to clear the dust out. I mean, like up to his shoulders, climbing into the side pod. Yeah, and there's a lot more, like, work on the car that occurs during the race. Yes, there's like reprogramming tweaking. the entire computer. Well, there was that. <laughs> um, you know, they they did that. Now, we've seen them do a restart on the computer systems in F1, 
but they do that all like remotely. Yeah, is the best way I can describe it. These guys were like doing wing tweaks and side pod clearing, and you know, changing this and changing that. And there was a lot of sort of spanners on the pit crew. Um, overall, I would give the comparison, and it's pretty real to me right now as we have just finished watching the opening Grand Prix for the F1 series, I would give the IndyCar series a grittier feel. It felt dirty, and I don't mean bad dirty. I meant like the guys were in there with their spanners and tweaking. It was less polished, less yeah, um, less electronic. Well, you, uh, you less... didn't have the clean garages with all the computers and everything there right off the pit lane that you could look into and see all that was going on. There was none of that. The one thing, though, that I got to say that did bug me, and it's part of the coverage, and it's something that in Formula One I kind of dig. And that's the whole situation with the radios. There didn't seem to be, in, in, in Formula One, the better the coverage gets, the better the team gets at covering the broadcast, you see them making concerted efforts to not step on the radio broadcast. You know who's talking. There's The, the FIA provides a bug that shows who's talking when the radio is activated, all of that stuff. And the broadcast team tries to get out of the way. IndyCar, it does not appear that there is any effort to do that whatsoever. You don't know who's who's actually on the radio, what team it is, whose radio you're hearing, and the broadcasters frequently talk over it without any concern whatsoever. That is definitely a difference that was a little annoying. Also, not knowing the drivers as intimately as we yeah. know the F1 drivers, there was a lot of sort of, I don't know, pen and paper trying to keep track of what was going on you know i did find it a lot harder to track between with every car being so unique and so distinctive with the exception of the two verizon penske cars it was really really hard to keep track of who was who and who was sitting in what car and it did feel like there wasn't as much information pushed to you on screen to go looking for and, and that definitely felt like it. I, in a way, I think that that adds to my feeling of it was a grittier feel. It was much more of the, hey, let's go downtown and build a race. Yeah. And less of the absolute military-like chiming um, strategic strike of the event where it was planned years in advance and you can see all the culmination of all the dominoes falling exactly right. This felt... I'm not, I don't want anybody to think I thought it felt amateurish. It didn't. It felt like it was. It felt more raw. Raw. Raw is exactly the right word. That is gritty, raw, mm-hmm. uh, spur of the moment kind of thing. So, yeah, real nutshell there, that was what happened. Juan Pablo Montoya taking the win at the opening Grand Prix of the 2016 IndyCar Series. But really, we're here for Formula we are we are definitely here for formula one do you have magic music for formula one to I, transition us i do not i have <gasps> more stuff coming later oh so okay first off and you know we, we got to get through all of the things that built up getting into this week because there actually it started off being slow and there was a lot going on okay i'm just going to tell you right now i am about to explode okay we're going to get there i <laughs> have Every year, one, one of the traditions in Formula One 
is that every year Sebastian Vettel names his car. Yes. And Hilda we, was the one I always remember. Heidi. Heidi. It was Heidi. And Heidi. I want to say it was like Dirty Heidi or something like that. It's typically this two 2012 names, or 2013 car was like Dirty Heidi or something like that. She won. But, yeah. She won. But it wasn't, uh, it's normally alliterative. Sometimes it is. Not always. Well, l- because last year uh, the car was Ava. Yes. That was, that was the full name for the car was Ava. Well, this year he, he has announced the name of his car. Uh, he has named the car Margarita. For the to drink? Which, well, to which Jenny Gao over at uh, BBC Five Live asked him why he named his car after a pizza, <laughs> which he didn't really appreciate. Um, what he did turn around and say, though, was um, it is a name, first of all, Margarita. If I think if you look it up, the first thing that comes up is a name, not a pizza. We just like the name. And like he points out, every year he gives a car a name. Um if you actually look up Margarita, um, and Jenny Gao did look it up in this week's Five Live pre-race podcast after being chastised by Seb, um, apparently the car is named after Queen Margarita of Italy, who, by the way, the pizza is named after. Right. Um, just so that we can round this out, I was right. Most of his double-named cars are alliterative. One is not. Okay. He has started with, um, let's see, there's... Luscious Liz and Randy Mandy. I remember those two. Kylie, uh, Kinky Kylie. Yep. Abby. Hungry Heidi. Hungry Heidi. That was Hungry it. Heidi. That was always, what, 2012? 2014. 2014. Was I think that Heidi. was 20. No, 2013 was 2013. Hungry Heidi. Heidi. And Susie was his last Red Bull in 2014. He didn't like Susie. He was not a fan of Susie. Yeah. Um, and Ava was last year. Um, but those are those are some of his his names for his cars. Now, when it came to tires this year, there's been a lot of changes. But one of the things that we have talked about quite a bit, because Pirelli talked about it quite a bit, was that it was their intention that they were going to bring back the performance cliff. That was where you heat the tires too much and performance would just fall off and we've seen races get severely impacted by tires going off that cliff right well after hearing several times that we're going to do it we're not going to do it we're going to do it we're not going to do it Pirelli came out this week and they said um yeah we planned on doing it this year but we can't do it (laughs) (laughs) it it didn't happen we we could not make it happen and they went into testing. Everybody thought it was going to happen, and apparently the feedback from the teams was, um, yeah, we didn't see any kind of performance cliff. It just went. It, it, it wasn't like it's a, you told us it's going to. Mm-hmm. And Pirelli admitted that they could not pull it off with this year's construction. Good to know. So also in the news, once again, the financial stylings of one VJ Malia. You know something? I think he has the most unique stylings of his finances. One of the questions that I guess the Guardian has been trying to figure out is, where in the world is Vijay Malia? Is he with Carmen Sandiego? Possibly, because wherever he is, he is not in India, where he insists that he isn't fleeing to pay the $1.34 billion, yes, that's billion with a B, owed by the defunct Kingfisher Airlines, which he used to own. Wow. 
Yeah. How does one dig themselves out of that kind of debt? Well, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, he was tied to the United Breweries Group, which he still serves as the chairman, and that he used to be the chairman of United Spirits, which was under United Breweries Group. The Guardian reports that he was given a $40 million partial severance package to leave that role amid allegations of financial trouble. UB Group, by the way, produces the popular Kingfisher beer, because mm. VJ likes to name all his stuff Kingfisher, um, which is still around. But Kingfisher, by the way, ceased operations in 2013. Um, and most of those $1.34 billion that is, um, he is in arrears on are all in loans that are still owned primarily to Indian state, state-run banks. But of course, to make it even more complicated, Vijay is also a member of the Indian parliament. So he has left the country as a member of Indian parliament, possibly fleeing a large amount of debt um, that is owed to Indian banks. Excellent. Yeah. Now, Vijay swears that he has not fled his debts. Um, and he even took to Twitter to try and clear his name. Uh, in particular, he took uh, issue with Times Now's coverage of the issue to where he said the editor of Times Now needs to be in prison clothes and eat prison food for libel, deceit, slander, and absolutely sensational lies. He goes on in another tweet. As an Indian MP, I fully respect and will comply with the law of the land. Our judicial system is sound and respective, but no trial by media. And goes on. Let media bosses not forget help, favors, accommodation that I have provided over several years, which are documented. Now lies to gain? News reports that I must declare my assets. Does that mean the banks did not know my assets or look at my parliamentary disclosures? And he, his last post, once a media witch hunt starts, it escalates into a raging fire where truth and facts are burnt to ashes. Drama much? I was thinking he went to the Donald Trump school of Twitter. Well, you know, if you declare something with enough uh, enthusiasm, it becomes true. Or enough Twitter posts? With enough Twitter posts, it becomes true. Now, the team has come out because there has been some speculation as to whether or not his financial styling issues could impact the team. The team has come forward and says that it is strong enough to pay its bills, um, but their issues aren't just with over VJ, but also the status of Sahara, the Sahara part of Force India. The name apparently is still on the card despite the fact that Sahara, their founder, is uh, in prison for his own financial issues. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see where this goes. So we got more words from Fernando Alonso in in leading up to the race, leading up to the week. One of the things that it was pointed out to uh, Fernando in the current lead up in all of his rounds of interviews is that his original contract with Ferrari that he bailed on two years early was supposed to run through this season. Mm -hmm. He bailed on Ferrari because he did not see that the uh, technical situation, the performance situation was going to improve. You know, the fact that Ferrari ended up winning three races last year, guided by Sebastian. And, and won none the previous year. Won none his last year with Ferrari. Um, and it looks like they're 
are still on par to make some sort of improvement. How far that improvement is, you know, testing's a little up in the air. We definitely saw some promising stuff from the race, but we don't know. So the question was posed to Fernando that, you know, if you had stayed through 2016 like you were supposed to, this car that is running this season that is as improved as it was, at least so much better than that 2014 car, it's a contender. It's a potential contender. Would you feel sorry for leaving Formula for leaving Ferrari if this car wins the title? And he did admit for the first time ever that he would regret leaving Ferrari if this car won. Wow. And that's, that's a huge difference from his e- for his ego. It is, especially considering he he's still said to several media outlets that he believes that it's the McLaren Honda that can beat Mercedes this year. Well, actually, I shouldn't say this year, that it's the car that will beat Mercedes. He didn't necessarily say this year. I I, I take that part back. Okay. But he did say he believes it's the McLaren Honda that could beat the Mercedes. That's the only one that could beat the Mercedes. Okay. Speaking of Mercedes... Lewis Hamilton seems to have, um, well, on his way to Australia, he stopped in New Zealand. He ne- apparently had never been to New Zealand before. Ah. And um, it didn't go all that well. What did he do? Well, for starters, he went to the, the Sky City Casino in Auckland. And it's not clear exactly what happened, but coming out of his visit there, he posted a tweet, which has since been deleted. Do not e- Don't ever go to Sky City Casino in Auckland. They treated me like dirt. Can't believe how rude they were. Worst casino experience ever. The rumor is that what happened was Lewis was trying to participate in some casino activities. We don't know what. But was wearing his sunglasses and his ball cap like he he tends to do. The problem is, is that New Zealand has a law regarding behavior and conduct in casinos that requires that if you are going to gamble, you cannot wear sunglasses or a hat. So there is some question as to whether or not it was the casino that approached him and and, uh, wanted him to remove both items, and he possibly didn't, didn't react well to it. Well, we know that he has never had real good grasp of dress code. Remember Wimbledon? (laughs) There's that too. Um, But that wasn't the only time. Apparently the police are investigating him because of some, I I don't know whether it was video that he posted or somebody, some pictures that somebody took of him on a motorcycle uh, in what appears to be taking a selfie. Which is against New Zealand law. You cannot use a handheld mobile device while riding on a motorcycle. <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah, he, he um his visit to New Zealand didn't go very well. I suspect that he's not going to willingly return to New Zealand for quite a while. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's not the way you go to a country the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Renault has talked about their engine situation. The first thing that they said is Renault Managing Director Cyril Abitbull has said that he has finally received some positive feedback from Red Bull regarding the engine. Whoa. 
It actually, that's that's kind no, of I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, they've had such a slap fight for so long. I'm impressed that they actually were able to grow up and say something nice about the engine. It's like, you know, the parents pulled the siblings into a room and said, okay, you say something nice about him. You say something nice about him. Yeah. Everybody shake. But one of the things that has been revealed in this week was tokens spent in the off season for development. Right. And we talked about this last week that Renault hadn't spent any tokens. No, we had. Oh, we well, we just are. Yeah, we are now. <laughs> Ferrari spent more tokens than anybody else. Renault spent nothing. And that was a big complaint that they had last year that they spent, they didn't spend tokens until late. They didn't spend enough. They didn't do, didn't do, didn't do. Yeah. Well, you know, Cyril Abitbull says that uh, they have made significant gains without having to cut into their allocation of tokens. Um, he says that he thinks it's a demonstration that we have used little tokens, but I hope in connection to the fact that we have made a su substantial step in terms of performance will be actual evidence that there is no connection between token use and performance. You can use a lot of tokens and bring absolutely nothing in terms of lap time, which, you know, we saw at the end of last season with Renault. Um, which is maybe something we did last year. See? <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole debate of tokens should go away and we should focus on performance. Good thing for him that it looks like we're doing that in 2017. Excellent. Speaking of Red Bull. and Oh, but wait. Before okay. you go off of Renault, one thing. I do want to compliment Renault on their paint job. Yes. I dig it. Hot yellow I'm works. you just noticed that. No. Oh, you said Renault. I'm Renault. sorry. I thought Renault. you were going Red Bull. No. And they're matte, because that one you also dug. I also dug the matte, although it does not read as... It only reads matte, like, in their garage. It yeah. doesn't read as matte on the, the track. But I dig the hot yellow of Renault. It stands out. It looks fast. It looks good. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of yellow, but just the general fact that it stands out and stands out as well as it does. You know, even in that the overhead shots of all of the action going on the track with the bunches of cars, you can very easily pick out the Renaults before anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, was an outstanding move. Right. I mean, you can see that yellow before you see the red Ferrari. Yeah. And, you know... I don't care what you say, but the navy blue of Red Bull, Toro Rosso, the black of Han of uh, McLaren Honda, and even the silver arrows themselves are hard to pick out on the track because their colors look like the track. Yeah. You know, the, even the Saubers this year I don't think stand out as well. But I got to give them credit for that bright yellow. I like the bright yellow. I like that it stands out. I think it looks sharp. So, to Red Bull, further on with Red Bull, made a bit of a splash this week because, as you recall, coming out of last season, we talked about this potential for a title sponsorship between Aston Martin and Force India. And before that, we talked about rumors between some kind of a joint development effort for a road car between Red Bull and, in particular, Adrian Newey and Aston Martin. Mm -hmm. Well, the Force India deal has fallen apart and does not look like it will be resurrected at all because the official announcement came out this week that Red Bull te Racing Technologies and Aston Martin will, in fact, be partnering on the development of what is being called a hypercar. 
So one step above the supercar, possibly barely street legal. And as part of that deal, there is some, and I have to emphasize some because it's really small, Aston Martin branding on the Red Bulls now. That sum is three small stickers, one on the nose, two on the side pod, that you have to be looking for. But it's there. It is there, and that has been celebrated by many media outlets as the return of Aston Martin to Formula One after a 50-year absence. Wow. Now, I'm not so sure that I would consider three stickers a return of Aston Martin. It's not three stickers. It's six. Okay, six stickers. (laughs) Let's get it straight. They are very clear, however, in the, the deal to announce repeatedly that this is not an engine deal. Yeah, they've come forward, and and Red Bull has come forward. As a matter of fact, Christian Horner said on Thursday of this week that this is not an indication of an engine deal. And one of the things that was talked about was the fact that the reason why, or the belief that the reason why the deal fell apart with Red Bull over the summer is because Red Bull was hoping to use Aston Martin as the leverage to get Mercedes engines because Aston Martin road cars use Mercedes engines. So that was the thought, and when the Mercedes deal fell apart with Red Bull, that killed the Aston deal. Now, Aston does say, despite the fact that this just looks like three stickers and and this side deal, um, Aston says its decision to enter F1 with Red Bull is part of a wider technology partnership and was prompted by it not wanting to get involved in a, quote, marketing scam of just putting stickers on a car. Yes, you heard that right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Andy Palmer, who's the chief executive officer of Aston Martin, said that they had never been hugely interested in what Force India had to offer. What he said, and there's some odd stuff here. He said, we are really good at secrets. It comes in our heritage. A little subterfuge and a few red herrings here or there. We are kind of a cool brand. We attract a lot of attention from a lot of people, and a lot of people talk to us. But we are all about authenticity. So you get in an Aston. What looks like leather is leather. What looks like wood is wood. What looks like carbon is carbon, and what sounds like a V12 engine is a V12 engine and doesn't have any hype on it. So authenticity was our number one concern here, and simply putting a sticker on the side of an F1 car was never going to cut it for us. This relationship and our relationship goes back quite a long time. It is authentic, and what you see coming out of it is in the first instance. What you see coming out of it in the first instance is the hypercar. But hopefully, other technologies will come out of it as well, and we can proudly put the stickers on the car and say it is more than just a marketing scam. Oh, that's cool. So it appears that somehow there may be a technology transfer. It does sound like there is obviously more to come, but the number of times you use the word authenticity and around the possibility of that Force India deal as being a red herring and subterfuge makes you kind of wonder if that's not a dig towards the fact that Force India is funded with string paper clips and a whole lot of debt that doesn't seem to affect things. Yeah. Now, yes, Horner has said that there's no engine deal, but he's also turned around and said that um, 
We're out of contract at the end of this year, as you know, and the choices in Formula One are somewhat limited. Unfortunately, Aston doesn't have an engine that we can use in F1. A V12 would be nice. Our engine discussions are separate to this, but obviously, in an ideal situation, we will find something that will work in harmony and unison. Palmer also offered an intriguing answer about whether or not his company would have any qualms if Red Bull switched to a rival engine manufacturer. He said, I don't think Honda competes with us. Ouch! <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Wow. So this week in our house, with this, like we said, being the first race of the season, this was kind of the question that was going around our house. How can you go outside when it's Grand Prix Day? Uh, yeah. Well, my pleather jumpsuit is at the cleaners, and I feel underdressed. Oh, that's understandable, then. She was being facetious, dear. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the snow this morning did help the desire to not go outside. <laughs> but, yeah, we've pretty much watched uh, F1 coverage wall-to-wall -wall this weekend. Pretty much, and it, it's been a battle. You know, one of the things that we don't mention too much, um, and we didn't mention the intro, and we should mention it now, where possible, as much as we are American, we try and avoid watching the NBC sports coverage. We don't like it. As much as we like Steve Matchett, um, he is an incredible intellect in the sport. We don't think very highly of David Hobbs. Wait, wait, wait. Don't fully He was a little lie. snarky this, this He time. has developed some good snark. Um, we did watch quite a bit of uh, NBC sports this weekend. Um, he's got some good snark. My our issue with David Hobbs is not that he's a bad person or even a bad commentator. It is that he is out of date. He drove in the 60s. His 70s, air but yeah. Okay, old. Yes. Old. Um, but he his era is past, and having a connection with today's driver is very, very difficult. In fact, I will mention that he spoke of Lewis Hamilton's lifestyle and there was a nod and a comparison to seeing if he is this generation's James uh, Hunt. And I think in the past, he's criticized Lewis's lifestyle. And I, I do. But he made the comment that back in his day, back in the day, um, all the drivers were like that. They were that He was of the Playboy driver era, though one would not see that today in David Hobbs. But um, he was of that era. And so... He doesn't have any relation to the privacy of a Vettel or a Schumacher and the, the Rosbergs that are buckling down and working out and developing their craft and their um, physique. Yeah, but he does it. Well, to get... Anyway, back to our topic. I started to drift away there. You Sorry. What we try and watch, we used to be very big fans of the BBC coverage. Um, those who have listened for a while know that we've been watching for Channel 4's coverage, which was a bit of an adventure to get it, but we at least saw that for qualifying. And um, we'll probably be watching some combination of Sky Sports and um, Channel 4's coverage later today to at least get the rest of the story because all the commercials, we find that a lot of the coverage is really kind of shallow from NBC Sports. Well, it's very funny because we watched, and 
we comparatively we watched qualifying both on NBC uh, Quali one mm-hmm. uh, Q one both on NBC Sports and the Channel Four coverage of the first round of qualifying and truly the stories were almost completely different you wouldn't think that you were watching the same race but one thing that was consistent between the two coverages yes between the two broadcasts is that neither broadcast team really had a good grasp on how this whole qualifying thing was supposed to work. And this qualifying, I have got to say, and, and I'm, I know a lot of people have said it already on the internet, an absolute disaster. It didn't accomplish what the goal Congratulations, Formula One management. You have effectively managed to take the one thing that everybody hated about the old qualifying, having chunks of time where there were not people on the track, and give us a new qualifying with even more time without cars on the track. And no drama. Well, there there was a little. In, In all honesty, if nothing else had happened and this qualifying stayed intact, I could see either the teams or FOM or the FIA revising how the pit lanes worked. Because I'm pretty sure that at some point in the season, if things had stayed the same in either uh, Q1 or Q2, at some at some point, there would have been an engineer rundown. Mm. Because of the way the cars were being spun around and cars getting trying to get out, trying to get into the garage and trying to service the cars. I could have seen an engineer getting run down, and by the end of the season, I could have seen the pit lane activity being very similar to what you see on a race day. You pull them into the box, you service them as quickly as possible, and you fire them right back out again. Because those processes work during a race, and they can handle it. All of the safety gear, all of the other pieces that happen when there's a lot of activity in a pit on a race don't exist during quality. Mm-hmm. Could see somebody getting injured. <clears throat> so if you are new or didn't pay attention last week, qualifying changed dramatically this week. Um, I, I, I want to very much believe that, you know, they they tried and they had the best of intentions at heart, but I don't. Um, the reality was that with the new... Um, qualifying where you had a period of time to set a really great lap time and then every 90 seconds the slowest car fell off the fell off and was eliminated um meant that there was a melee at the very beginning of every qualifying where everybody got out they set their time Mm -hmm. and then they sat in the pits for the rest of qualifying there was no need to push because if you weren't on the lap uh if you weren't on that hot lap in that 90 seconds to and protected to cross the start finish line at, nine, at that 90 second mark, if you were on the bubble, you were going to stay off. The, you didn't the have road. enough time. If the, if the counter had moved up so that you were within that 90 second window, unless you were on a hot lap already, you did not have the opportunity to go and set a faster time to pull yourself out of it. You were screwed. And then there was a little bit of drama in Q1 where that 90-second timer had started for, I think it was Julian Palmer. Palma. Um, yes. And he, he as was the, the last, last one in the session. And so he was the last, he 
was on his hot lap. It was the the time had run out in the session. He was on the bubble. And that last lap, even though he finished it after the 90 seconds, um, he was above the line. So he got to move into quali two, where if you were, if you had not set that time by the 90 second mark for the previous six people, you were done. You were done. So he essentially had a little bit more than 90 seconds to set that lap. But what the most egregious thing of the entire qualifying had to be the, well, Q3 in its entirety. You know, we have gotten used to Q3 being, especially those last few seconds, of being really, really good, dramatic on-track action as Folks were hitting and completing that last hot lap after the checkered flag had fallen and times would just drop and drop and edge of your seat stuff. And instead, what we got with this new qualifying is, and, and we had to watch it a second time to really figure out where this point was, with seven minutes left of qualifying, it was decided. Mm-hmm. There was no other need for anybody to go out there. Four minutes left of qualifying, everybody came in. There was nobody on the track for the last four minutes. Sebastian Vettel came in the press conference and said that he could have gotten changed. No, he did. He did get changed. Lewis could have come out and waved the checkered flag at the end of the qualifying because there was that much time left. And that was inexcusable. Right. So, what we have now. Oh, good news. What? And it truly is. After the unmitigated disaster that this qualifying was, team bosses have met. Uh, they met before the race today and unanimously agreed that with race number two in Bahrain, we will revert back to the old qualifying. Uh, and the, the skies opened up and the angels sang. Our Formula One nightmare is over. Well, <laughs> at least that one, one. <laughs> at least that one now here's the thing that i want to not lose sight of okay is they tried something new mm-hmm. it didn't work they're making quick changes to fix it you, you gotta and give I them credit for that. that is the story that they need to go after i loved the fact that every driver that was interviewed about well what did you think what did you think you know what the first thing they said was Ask the fans. Mm-hmm. Ask the fans. You wanted to do this for the fans. Well, ask them what they think. I you mean, know, I liked that. Yeah, there was that. That being said, most of the feedback was negative. You know, Lewis came out and said, hey, the, the Mercedes engineers went to the FIA and said, this was going to happen. This was exactly how everybody planned it out. I think Christian Horner came out and said it the same way. Christian Horner came forward and said, we need to apologize to the fans Mm -hmm. because of this disaster. Um, I mean, everybody came out and said it was bad, with the exception of, I think, two drivers. Max Verstappen said that it was really exciting to him. But he said it was exciting because he felt he had really good laps, and he did. You know, he got a career-high qualifying position up in fifth. So for him, it was actually a really good qualifying session. And he said from that perspective, this was fantastic. But I think that that is that universal thing of being color. You know, you color your opinion of something based on the result. 
Yeah. You know, if I went out there and I had, you know, P1, I would think it was pretty awesome too. Yeah. But, yeah, universally, this was a disaster. But I have to know. Okay. What did your friend Kimmy say about qualifying? (laughs) Well, Kimmy in the pen came out and said, um, well, it's a rule. And if it's a rule, we have to do it. That's Kimmy for you. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we get the better qualifying next time around. Woohoo! We we will have that. Some of the other things that came out, um, apparently, well, not apparently, there was, for many cars, some limited running uh, during the practices. Some of that was weather-related. Some of it was also because, apparently, all of the teams were dealing with shortages of spares. The word on the street is that by moving the race up two weeks like they did, it caused a serious crimp in everybody's production schedules. So there was a lot of concern about damage and failure. Um, and Initially, I had seen this just for Haas, and then all of the teams, including Mercedes, came out and said, yeah, you know, we kind of backed off what our program was supposed to be because we just don't have all the parts that we needed in Australia. Well, you combine the fact that this is a long flyaway race. Mm-hmm. Um, there were reports that Haas was actually carrying some of the stuff that they needed. The ballast. The ballast yeah. on the airplanes the day before to well, get over there. One of the, the statistics that I heard rolling into this was just overall in terms of freight numbers. And it gives you an idea of how some of these teams operate. And that was that Force India brought to the, the track... Um, 25 tons of air freight, which was, I think, their their allocation. That, well, it, it's, it's all that they need. They brought 25 tons of air freight. By comparison, Ferrari brought 50 tons of air freight. And another 10 tons of freight came in by sea. Wow. And this for a race that it's a flyaway race with motorhome and all of that stuff. Now, what we don't know is how much of that is stuff that was just for Australia and is not following the team to uh, Bahrain. How much of it is stuff that they're specifically just, you know, you're packing the containers, you might as well just pack for everything while we're on, or how that's going to work. I don't know. Uh, I I don't fully understand the logistics of how they pack for some of these races, but I think it's important to understand that it's the first race of the season. They have not manufactured as many spares. Yeah. Y- you wind up through the course of the season of gaining spares when you don't need parts for a given race. Yeah. So that's the other piece is every nose that didn't have to get changed out becomes the spare for Bahrain. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the it, though it's a waterfall effect. Um the other thing was we did have rain for most of the practices. So that increases... Well, for Friday practice. Well, and it increases the level of potential damage. So if you are already running short on noses, for particular example, <laughs> you're not going to risk needing an extra nose because you kiss the wall, Nico Rosberg. <laughs> it was kind of cool watching that crash. I mean, sideways down the track is uh, impressive. Yeah. But yeah. So some statistics... Statistics. This week, our statistics and facts, and I suspect for the rest of the season, come from the folks over at Renault F1. Um, our, our cool statistics that from BBC don't look like they're happening, unfortunately. But 
And okay. we don't have things in terms of weights of masses. No, not yet. Maybe Williams will give us some stuff later. So first statistic, the lowest starting position for a winner is 11th. Uh, average starting position for the winner is typically 2.77, with the highest G-force coming in at turn 11 for two seconds at 3.7 G. Now, as a constructor, and again, th these are Renault-centric statistics, they have had two victories. Mm. Um, there is a 52% chance of a safety car. There have been 14 winners from pole and features a three a top speed of 327 kilometers and 65 gear changes per lap. Wow. So some of the other statistics from Melbourne and, and the area. More than 1 million cups of coffee are brewed in Melbourne each day. Latte is the preferred brew of Melburnians, and the inaugural Melbourne Coffee Week took place from the 10th to the 19th of March. Um... Melbourne's famous tramway system stretches along 244 kilometers. That would be 152 kilometers for those of us, or 152 miles for those of us in the U.S. of track and has 450 trams. It is the largest outside of Europe and the fourth largest in the world. Um, tire selection, available tires, the super soft, the soft, and the medium. In 2011, there were 11 overtakes. The circuit length is 5.303 kilometers and a race distance of 307.574 kilometers and should be 58 laps, assuming everything goes as planned. Um, lap record was set by Michael Schumacher in 2004 of 1 minute 24.125 seconds. Mm. And Renault wants all of us to know that they have had 106 starts, 8 wins, 21 podiums, 10 poles, 7 fastest laps, and 324 total points as a constructor and engine supplier in Australia. Congratulations, Renault. <laughs> Do you know what didn't happen this week for Renault? They did not get a poll. They did not get a poll. They did not get a point. They did not get a win. Which, you know, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, and I have to find the picture, and hopefully the tweet as well, sent out by Kevin Magnuson um, of him walking, and he posted this, him walking through, it looks like the paddock, with his race suit unzipped and <laughs> half down, so, because the inside of their race suits are yellow, and no, a white outside. top. It's outside. No, it was the inside. It was unzipped and folded down. So it was the inside you can see. When it's zipped up, it's black. Oh, with okay. yellow piping because it's the inside that has the yellow line and you can see through. But anyway, he has the suit unzipped and folded down to his waist with the yellow lining visible from the waist down. And from the waist up is the white Nomex suit to which he has now described that he looked like a banana. And, and his hashtag was <laughs> Team Banana. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Yeah. <laughs> He may not be as happy with the yellow coloring as, as I am. At least for the inside linings <laughs> of their race suits. <laughs> with their white Nomex suits underneath. Now, one of the other big rule changes to come in this year, and it is, again, another controversial rule change, has been the restrictions on the radio. And last week, you read off all the details of the radio restrictions. Um, 
And all the commentary this week seemed to surround that it sounded like the FIA wanted to return to an 80s-style radio structure where the drivers were sent out on the track. Here was the overall strategy. Mm -hmm. They planned it and go execute Sands help from the pit wall. And to, to further clamp stuff down, leading into the weekend, and I believe this came before qualifying, the FIA came out and ratcheted down the limits even further than we specified last week. Um, they even went so far as to say that lap times and sector details, drivers can only be told about their own performance, not that of competitors. Mm. Originally, that was the case. Um, and information regarding pit stops can only be made on the lap the driver is supposed to be coming in, to which the teams kind of threw a hissy fit. Oh, exactly. Um, as a result, an hour before the race, they came out and clarified and, and actually relaxed some of it. They have now come out and said that, uh, where is it? The driver's own pit stop strategy, as well as um, those of his competitors. Now, he said that this is limited to the timing of pit stops and which tires will be or have been used. And for the avoidance of doubt, no power or no car or power unit setup may be included in strategy discussions on the radio. But there can be some talk of strategy during the race. Not much. So... One of the most interesting interviews that we saw pre-race was actually with Lewis Hamilton mm -hmm. explaining that, you know, this was an idea of a return to the 80s-style radio structure. But the problem was that these aren't 80s-style cars. They're the stuff that the drivers can do on the cars, the, mm -hmm. the, the modes, the, the turning the engines down and up and tweaks and things that they can do. Strat in mode three they can do inside the cars are much, much more complicated than they could do in the 80s. And so one of the things that he said he was doing the night before the race was studying the book of how, how you do all of the things yep. that they do. And he can't even be told what to do. It's not even just that he can't be told, you know, it's red, green, and blue button pushing. He can't be told that he needs to go to strap mode three. Yeah. Um, and so it's a lot of those pieces. And now this is a reaction to the story. The history is at one point as the cars got more and more advanced, they were the pit wall was able to make these changes to the cars remotely. Mm -hmm. And so the FIA thought that that was unsporting. And so required that the drivers make the changes to the setup of the vehicle and so they pushed the ability down to the drivers, but the engineers instructed the drivers as to how to do what they needed to do, when to do it, and when to do it. And that all started to sound over the radio like coaching and too much. Well, that was part of it. But what really pushed the limit was there were, and, and we heard this in 2012 and 2013 in several uh, at several races, drivers getting told, hey, you're breaking too early into turn whatever. And that definitely is coaching or the turn deeper into these turns. Th those definitely were driver coaching. And I could see that. And in, I think it was 2013, there was a lot of talk. And this was Mercedes' fault. It was Mercedes who was notorious for this. Passing information along 
from one driver to another if Nico something Nico did w- was uh, impacting how the car handled or or how something happened, they were passing that information on to Lewis and vice versa. Right. And there was cross communication and collaboration between the two sides of the garage, and that a lot of people were were, were cr- crying foul about. So in an effort to make the the sport in more in the driver's hands is why they have restricted these um radio messages so much the complaint is that they appear to have tightened it too far now what charlie whiting has said and and he said this in, in the press conference leading up to it um he said the driver is allowed to say anything he wants there are no restrictions in what he says it's just what the team can say to him you will still get the juicy content. If someone has done something silly on the track, the driver can call him an idiot and all this sort of stuff. But fundamentally, what they want to cut is just like you said. They want to cut the engineering assistance. And I will say this. We'll get to it in a little bit. There were some heated messages a few times back to the pits. But there was also... Lewis coming out of the restart where he radioed back to the team and said, hey, how do I clear this alarm? And the team's response was, we can't tell you. Dang it. (laughs) And I don't know. I kind of consider that since he's asking about an alarm that he's seeing, Mm -hmm. that should be information he should be able to get from the team. Yeah. I mean, I think that. I think my theory would be if a driver asked for specific instructions on how to perform a maneuver, just let me go with that, they should be able to tell him, you know, what to do to do that. And my thought process is the goal is to make the driver in charge of their car. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I would think that it should be completely sporting if Lewis was to radio back and say, I want to put the car in strap mode three, what's the button presses? That he should be able to get the instructions to do exactly that because he's making the call as to what mode to put the car into. But what if he turned around and said that he wanted to put the car into that engine mode and a team came back and said, no, we don't think so, or no, it puts the car at risk, or something like that. Could the, Would you be okay with the team radioing back feedback on that call? No. Okay. No, I would e- even if they, they they thought that the engine's running on the limits and doing that increases the risk of blowing that engine up in a lap or two as opposed to giving him an advantage. Now I will say that there is a strong temptation that let's go with my example. Lewis says, Hey, I want to put the car in strap mode three and the pit wall go okay. No, your oil temp is too high. No. It turns around and goes, Yep, that's yellow button twice. And yellow button twice puts it in strap mode four. <laughs> yeah you know that's that's what i think is a bigger risk um oh instead of them actually coming out and saying no you don't want to do that as opposed to giving him instructions of something else that would prevent it to happen but i don't know now so i think we have bigger problems to solve than radio calls that's my yes issue. definitely you know and christian horner it's one of the things he said he thinks this is terrible for the fans and i agree i like hearing that stuff and i get that yeah maybe it's a little excessive w- with some of the stuff that's been said but hearing that communication especially when we can't see the drivers 
you can't see their faces. You really have no connection with a driver who is in the car in the race. So the more we get to hear from them and the more communications we hear gives us something to latch on to. Exactly. So let's talk about the race. Oh, can we finally? Thankfully, not only was this probably one of the better season openers in quite a while, I think that at least the race itself made up for the ultimate disaster, the absolute shambolic disaster that qualifying was. Yes, I used shambolic. I know. Most of the teams come from England, so shambolic seemed appropriate. Okay, so let's talk about the first bit of the race. There was another new ruling that really flew under the radar at the beginning of the race. It used to be that there were two clutches in the car, Mm -hmm. and this year they now only have a clutch on the back wheels of the car. Now, originally, last year with those two clutches, the first half of the season, During the formation lap, the driver would work with the team over the radio from the various bits of feedback to set the various clutch bite points so that they can get the best launch. From SPA of last year, that communications was cut off, and it was the driver's responsibility to try and figure out where those clutch points were and where to to make those settings changes for the best launch. This year, they've taken away the second clutch completely. So there was a lot of concern going into this race that that was going to affect starts. Apparently and it did. <laughs> sure enough, our pole sitter bogged down on his start, um, allowing an opportunity which, as anyone can expect, Sebastian Vettel pounced on in Ferrari-like style. Yeah, he had... Probably the- one of the best starts I have ever seen. You know, in all honesty... I got to compare this to another, d- despite what NBC Sports says, well, it wasn't a particularly great start by Ferrari, bull. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got to actually compare this to another Ferrari driver's starts when he would typically, when he would frequently find himself much further back on the grid than he should have been. Fernando Alonso used to have these same kind of rocket-like starts and slice through the grid, and that's exactly what Seb did. Now, granted, he only had one row, but he managed to jump pretty quickly up in front of both Lewis and Nico. Oh, he slid like he was greased right between those two Mercedes, beat them both down to turn one, and by turn two, he was taken off. And with his slicing of those two Mercedes, he opened the door for Kimi Raikkonen to push right through two. We spent the first few laps of that race with a Ferrari 1-2 and Mercedes third with a Lewis back in seventh. Now, coming into turn one through that whole little bit of jockeying there, it was really kind of dicey between the two Mercedes and between the Ferrari. And, And I believe it was... Raikkonen that kind of was pushing Nico over and as a result Nico was pushing Lewis wide to the point that there was actually some contact between the two now we have gotten words from both Lewis and Nico on this Nico has apologized to Lewis Um, he said that he did not he, he wasn't trying to push Lewis wide he was getting pushed over himself and even Lewis has acknowledged that Nico had nowhere else to go Right. That it was not necessarily Nico's fault. This wasn't deliberate for Nico. He was trying to get clear, and that's where the contact got made. 
I got to say, they were really lucky out of that. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we'd seen in the past in Spa something similar, and instead of coming away unscathed, one ended up with a puncture, the other ended up with a damaged wing, and there was no damage out of this. But you could see, if you looked, you could see that wing flexing. They were really lucky. Uh, Mercedes was very, very lucky. Um, And I have to say, as you go full circle, towards the, even at the end of the race, I was pleased to see the boys really playing nice. You kind of gotten used to a little bit of animosity between the two of them. And Mm -hmm. they really looked like they started the season off with hugs and pats on the backs. And, you know, Lewis even said that from his standpoint, he came back from mid-pack and he fought he fought Mm -hmm. hard to get the position he did and while you know he got bogged at the beginning he ran a very good race and one to be proud of but you know that brings up something else the big push that um bernie eccleston has had for to to revamp qualifying what he wants to see and it doesn't look like it's going to happen this year but what he wants to see is that the winner of the previous week's race gets a time penalty for the next qualifying to force them further down. And this week, what we saw was why that's a bad idea. Well, the reality is this generation of Formula One car is so aerodynamically tight that we have we see that they have problems passing. Because once you get really close to somebody, you... They can't pass. They get bogged down. That wing starts it's flexing. It's been an issue in the previous generation as well. It's more magnified now. But they lose down for the front. They lose front downforce when they spend too much time closely behind the car in front of them in dirty air. And you end up with a situation where Lewis, for the first into the race, couldn't get past a Red Bull and a Toro Rosso. Right. And as soon as he got clear of them, his lap time picked up by two seconds so what you're going to wind up with is not having people fighting Mm -hmm. and actually achieving the passing that everybody seems to declare makes a great race um you're going to wind up with people struggling behind lesser cars yes and that's just going to be frustrating for all so maybe bernie isn't right no i know i know so one of the other really big stories from the weekend or do you want to go through the race itself and what happened and, and work. I have right. two stories that I want us to cover. Okay. We Otherwise, don't ever I would go just go through the lap. teams. We don't ever go by lap by lap, so I want to cover two things. Okay. Do you want the crash? We can go with the crash. Okay. So around lap 15 to 17. It was lap, nine, lap 18. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, Esteban Gutierrez and Fernando Alonso tangled. That was was one heck of a crash the aftermath of it the car that alonso slid out from under did not even resemble an f1 car and yet the crash pod was completely intact yeah the entire crash structure was I mean, it, it did function exactly as designed. Everything that should be destroyed on it went on and destroyed to protect the passenger. And he walked away. He was limping after he got out of the medical tent but was cleared. I doubt they're even going to call for a concussion at this point. No, I don't, think, I don't think so. But given how this went, 
and and the the push that F one has had regarding safety. That car stayed upright until it hit the gravel trap. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is going to be a push to do something with the gravel traps, considering as soon as it snagged the car, it flipped it, and flipped it a lot? It made two complete revolutions by my count. So before we talk a little about Fernando and his reaction, um, we've got some audio straight from the cockpit from Gutierrez's car. And you, you can hear that I think everybody involved from the team to the driver was a, a bit shaken up by this. Okay. Yeah, I'm okay. Is he okay? Yeah, Alonso Fernando is fine. Wow. We don't even know who we're talking about now because of how dramatic that was. You know, and the broadcasters, I, I've watched the cover, the footage both from NBC Sports and from Sky. And because the cameras weren't on them when this happened and, and all that they saw was the car in the gravel trap, everybody had the same reaction. Oh, this is Gutierrez. What happened? Something. And then all of a sudden it was, what the heck is over in the runoff area? What's all the way back there? And then, holy crap, it, it's it's Alonzo. So Alonzo didn't even know where he ended up when this mm. happened. So here's the words from Alonzo. He says, you're not exactly aware where you are. You're just flying, and then you see the sky, the ground, the sky, the ground, and you don't know. When I stopped, I saw a little space to get out of the car, and I went out quickly just to make sure that people at home were not too worried about me. (laughs) Then I didn't know where I was because I was so far from the track. I said, I traveled a lot when I was flying. Everything, it felt like it happened slower than it looked on the outside. You want to stop, and it doesn't stop, and it keeps going and going and going. It was quite scary. He was given the all-clear, as we know, by medics uh, not long afterwards. He says, it's all fine, apparently. There is some pain in the knees because you are bouncing a lot in the cockpit, but apart from that, everything should be okay. I'll tell you tomorrow when I wake up. He said his thoughts had swiftly moved on after the crash. You're thankful that you are alive and nothing happened, and no injuries and nothing serious. But the second thought immediately is the frustration of not finishing the race. We probably lost our power unit completely because the car is completely destroyed. So that's sad, but it's the way it is. Yeah. Now, that crash led to a red flag. Yes. And the next thing you see is all of the guys lining up in the pit lane and the guy, the uh, uh, various and sundry uh, mechanics and engineers coming out and tweaking and changing tires on the cars and it led to the only tire change on the Haas racing car of Roman Grosjean. Yes. Now I mention this because it's an interesting call out. That is not a pit stop. Mm -hmm. So when we look at Haas racing, which I predicted rightly so will be one of the big stories of the year is the American team. When we look at Haas racing, they not only ended up with points in their first race. They did they finished a race without a pit stop. Yeah. <laughs> now hopefully I will have uh, for next week the audio from uh, Roman Grosjean uh post race uh in the car because it was fantastic. It was. Um, he is such a sweet sweet guy. All he knew was that um they finished well, but had no idea where, where, where they stood in a race. <laughs> <laughs> but he did know that they got points. 
And that was important. And Gene Haas going into this had said just finishing was his goal. A win to them would be finishing. They were cons- Gene has said they were concerned that they were just going to screw something up somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is huge for the team to come out, not only to win points, which is the first time a, a new team has scored points since 2002, and that was Toyota that did it. Right. But not only did they score points, but they scored a lot of points. I mean, it's eight points. They have now, in one race, the entire lifespan of the team have earned more points than Manor. Because I think Manor had two. Correct. Correct. They are sitting firmly in fifth place of the constructors. <laughs> Now, I don't know. Well, we don't think they'll stay I don't there, know. But. I can't say whether or not they will stay. I won't make any predictions that this will be the final call. But I just want you to know that from one race in, Haas Racing, brand new to the field, brand new to F1, is currently outscored the veteran team of McLaren. The return to motor racing team as a constructor of Renault. Mm-hmm. Of the ferrari engine Toro Rosso. That's surprising. Yes. And even outscored Force India, which has been rumored to be competing for third place between Williams and Red Bull. Yeah. Now, a lot of the talk is that Ferrari and Mercedes are going to be fighting out for 1-2 in the constructor standing throughout the season. That sure looks like it after this week. And then... Williams, Red Bull, and Force India will be fighting for three, four, and five. Um, I don't know. Wild card now with Haas being as strong as they are, where they could wind up. Um, and I think sixth or seventh. Toro Rosso, Renault, McLaren kind of falling in that mid-pack, probably fighting with Haas. But here's a question. Based on how the payout rules work for Formula One, even if Haas gets points, they wouldn't get prize money. Right, for three years. So does that mean that the team that would be th- the 11th place team would get prize money? No, there's no prize money for 11th place. They, Exce- would, they would just, they would not get paid. So my what understanding happens is, to that money? My understanding is that that just stays in the pot, or Bernie keeps oh. it, or it's probably, knowing Bernie's deal, it's probably in some payoff into Ferrari, which is probably why they agreed to give Haas everything that they could. You know, any money left in the pot probably goes to Ferrari. I've now, said it before, and I will say it again. The payout system is broken. Right. When you look at what's broken with F1, start with how, follow the money. (laughs) Follow the money. Now, my other big story, before we get into standings and everything like that, my other big story about the race that I want to talk about. Is it a certain angry young driver? We have a teen on, we have a teen. Um, Apparently, now, radio calls and such, Max, the teenager first happened. It's easy to forget that he is really just 18 years old. It is easy because he is a mature driver in so very many ways. But he's still hormonal. Hormonal doesn't necessarily agree with the team as we hear here. How many times I said I have problems with the tires? I wanted to pit first. <laughs> okay, that was his two-year-old temper fit. 
He also cleaning up some of the other language language in his uh, message and going back to the drivers can say whatever they want. Max yes. used it. Um, his other uh, radio calls included, can I try to get past? Let me drive. This takes too long. Come on. We have to do something. Well, that would be this. Come on. We have to do something. It sounds better when Whiny says it. And it's a joke. Now, again, within the bounds of the new regulations, there was some feedback provided to his teammate Carlos as uh, Max was getting frustrated being bottled up between Carlos and Carlos struggling to get past uh, Renault, Jolie, and Palma. Carlos, push. I am pushing. I am pushing. Don't tell me to push. Yes, otherwise we will swap the next lap. There, there's. So that I guess you can say. I guess you can. Get the hell out of the way or we're, 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 we're making you do it. Now, the thing that we didn't see is that at some point post-race, not shortly, not too far after the race, mm-hmm. there was teenage trademark bedroom door slamming. <laughs> Though it was not a bedroom door, it was actually the door to Franz Toss's office. Max was called into his office and sat down and explained. Interesting. Um, now, we know that from the post-race interviews, a much calmer, cooler Max came out. Mm-hmm. Um, one that was back to a return of his more mature days. And I have to, you know, that is quintessentially being 18. You you go off the handle yeah. and you come back a cooler, stronger human being. And we've got to allow him to grow up. I mean, to judge him to the standard of a 30-year-old Lewis is not fair. It's just not. He's going to be more emotional. And if he can still, and he pulled off some beautiful passes even while being emotional, but his emotions did get the best of him, and he clipped the back end of his teammate's car, which we all know in F1, you don't take your teammate out. Yeah. And um, he clipped him, he spun, and he was able to recover to a 10th place, but he was behind Carlos Sainz Jr., um, who was in ninth. Which I've got to say, given the hype that was given to the Toro Rosso team, a ninth and a tenth, I find kind of disappointing. I thought that they I were mean, behind where they should have been. Not completely unexpected for a team running a 2015 engine. But when they qualified up in, what, fifth and sixth? Yes. That's kind of surprising to see them just barely in the points. True, but Sebastian Vettel had an interesting thing to say about the difference between qualifying and racing. And he was talking a lot about, you know, that the the lap times were so fast in qualifying, even with our crappy qualifying. <laughs> and how would it translate to racing and the fact that, you know, he even took off off the line and was really fast for a period of the race and still couldn't hold on to it. Was that somehow a, a black mark against Ferrari? And Ferrari says that they messed up. They yeah. didn't they didn't manage the tire strategy correctly to handle the race. But Vettel came out and said that that's one of the things that you learn about F1 is qualifying and race are two different things. And we know that there is an ability to qualify well and not race well. And there's also the ability to not qualify well and then turn around 
and win races. It's balancing the two is what is key to Formula One. Couple of last minute points. Word has come out that uh, Mercedes was on the verge of retiring Nico's car. Wow, that's impressive since he won. Yes. Uh, there, there was apparently a, a problem with uh, the brake calibers. Some uh, debris had gotten in there. Brakes were overheating, and about midway through the race, they were at a point that they had gotten hot enough that they were considering retiring the car. However, because of the way the rules are set, they could not tell Nico that there was a problem with brake temp. Oh, now, the issue did clear itself. The debris moved away. The brakes cooled down, and obviously things went very well. I think the other import, important thing to mention is despite losing Fernando's car, we saw a better McLaren. Right. They easily made it into Q2, which was a struggle last year. Um, Jensen was out of the points, but the car didn't look like it was struggling as much. Well, he wasn't fighting Manor for last place. Yeah. So it looks like there's some promise for more points. I, They're not there. No. They're not there by a lot, but I think it looks better than it has. There, there might be hope. So. Um, anything else you want to talk about with the race? I mean... No, I think that's about everything. You don't I've want got. to talk about the flaming retirement of Kimi Raikkonen? Well, okay, that was interesting. The only reason why I did not do that is because we have not seen the Sky coverage of it. Mm. The NBC coverage, um, they were in an interview with Daniel Fiat. So we did not know what was going on. There was apparently some kind of a radio call, but um, they talked right over that. And uh, we didn't know that there was something happening until you looked in a little postage stamp screen and said, hey, there's fire coming out of that car. So exactly what happened and why, we don't know. Thank you, NBC Sports. Well, I will say this. I think it was kind of funny that he came into the pit box. Now, he was obviously coming in to retire. They weren't out there to change anything. But he came into a face full of fire extinguisher. Yeah, there was that. <laughs> but then again, there was fire right over his head. Right. So, just to be clear. And it looks like uh, from the podium, Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber have made up. It does. It does. They obviously are a lot better post-teammates than current teammates. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you predicted rightly that Sebastian Vettel was going to pour champagne over Mark Sure Ted, enough, it happened. And sure enough, as if on cue. And uh, Mark handled it very well. Yeah, yeah, they they look like they could be actual friends. Yeah, especially the the conversation about uh, possibly some karaoke later on, uh, <laughs> summer of '69. Uh, I'm I'm kind of curious about that one, but uh, <laughs> well, Mark also mentioned that he can't drink as much as he used to be able yeah. to. So anyway, um, on that happy note, you know. Just a reminder, we, we'd love to hear your feedback, hear your thoughts. If you've got your, your opinion on the radio situation, or if you actually like this qualifying, maybe there is somebody out there who did. I don't know. I have yet to see a single person like yeah, it. Yeah, well. 
Um, but if you did, you know, feel free to leave us a, a comment over on the Facebook page or over at the website at uh, www.thebloakeandabird.com. Uh, we are always looking for reviews, whether it's over on iTunes or over on, uh, on Stitcher. Very good. Yeah, well, you know, I got to get that right. Yeah, but, it's, uh, it's been 50 episodes. You'd think that you would get it right. Every once in a while. They're, they're really close, Nate, Stitcher, Spotify. They share the same first letter. Yeah, that's close enough. They have two <laughs> syllables. <laughs> so anyway, um, on Spotify that note, is three. On that note, we will do something that we have not done in a very, very long time. Cue Barbie. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.